Well, hello and welcome back to Consumer Choice Radio, broadcasting on Saga 960 AM and the Coastal Carolina Network. I'm one half of your host, Yael Ososki. We're ringing out the end of June, beginning of July. Uh, and actually today we are broadcasting and um, it's Canada today. So happy Canada Day to my colleague and co-host, David Clement. David, how goes it? Oh, it's going well. It's going well. Um, I have some interesting Canada Day uh, stats for you um, that have recently come out. All right, hit me with them. Um, okay, so what percentage of Canadians, uh, so there was a, a Leger poll, uh, what percentage of Liberal supporters do you think are very or somewhat proud to be Canadian? I would, um, I'm going to say in the lows and go 40%. Actually, 97%. What? <laughs> are proud to be Canadian. Correct. Yep. And then what do you think that is for wow. conservatives? Um, okay, then I'll, uh, I'll give it a... I will say 70%. 76. And then we're going to go to the fringes here. The People's Party of Canada. What percentage of them Okay, so People's... People's Party, well, probably like vote totals more like three or four, but let's let's be charitable and say about, let's say 50%. 46. Pretty good. 45, sorry. You're pretty good. That's You had a good read on uh, on the, the Maxime Bernier crowd. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Okay. I, uh, well, obviously, do you think this is correlated just because there happens to be a liberal government, so you're prouder of your... Uh, I don't know, your nationality? <laughs> I, I, I don't I know. I think so. Yeah, I think so. I think so. Um, I have another doozy uh, for you, um, which I guess when you became a U.S. citizen, you did you take a test? Do they make minors take the test? No, they don't. Yes, of course I had to take a test. Oh, I was okay. not a minor, though. I was just over the threshold. Oh, okay. Okay, so um, same, uh, same Leger poll. Um what percentage of Canadians could pass the 20 question test that immigrants have to pass? 20 questions. Wow. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm also going to keep it low. I'm going to say about 48%. 23%. Well, if it's always about like who's on the, if it's on the, who's on the hundred dollar bill, then yeah, I can, I can see a lot of people flunking that one. They don't, I don't think they ask that, do they? That is something that they do ask in the U.S. sometimes, I've heard. Because obviously that matters. Mine were much simpler. <laughs> well, a little bit. Okay, you coming out with the, with the polls uh, this morning. I guess you got some, some any other nuggets there with it found within that presentation deck? Um, 79% of, of Canadians correctly identified First Nations, Métis, and Inuit as the main groups of Indigenous people. Which is, I think, partly because the national conversation on indigenous people has significantly elevated over drinking water, unmarked graves, and all of that. Um, so that's a positive development. Um, some some good. Do they give civic... you pictures, or you have to go on name? Just name, just name. Okay. I yeah. Didn't know if it's like, well, here's an igloo. Yeah, I think it's going to be this one. You've, you've no, got this like vast that that would... British Columbia forest land. Which one will be this? Yeah, yeah. I th that has a that that could very quickly get uncomfortably politically incorrect. I can see that. Yeah. Okay. Well, uh, that is one thing that we are not here at. Um, what's the name of this program again, David? Welcome back to Consumer Choice Radio. Yes. Uh, some nice voiceover work to, to aid us in this. Uh, for those of you who are curious, this is a um, just a fella, just a Canadian fella I met in a bar. <laughs> and I'm talking to the guy. And uh, Can you tell that story? Is it just random? No, just, uh, well, oddly enough, I mean, I guess the, the beginning of this show is going to be about Canada today. But um, basically, I was hanging out with two French Canadians, two Quebecois who uh, showed up in town. It's guys I, mm -hmm. or at least one of the guys I met, I don't know, 15 years ago and reached out and people like to travel to Europe uh, during the summer months and I uh, get many such requests. Uh, so it was yeah. cool for me. 
<laughs> what? That sounds like that sounds like the beginning of a joke. It sounds like the beginning of a joke. Three French Canadians walk into an Austrian. Yeah, and that's essentially what it was. And this is a very homey place where you share tables, you know, amongst the crowd, and um, you know, everyone's got their beers and schnitzel and everything. And uh, it's cool for me because I get to, um, you know, in good Canada Day fashion, uh, just speak French with my my two fellow nationalists. <laughs> and uh, we, one guy over there, we just we heard he's like, uh, uh, "S'il vous plaît, uh, êtes-vous Canadien?" are you Canadian? Using a, a very uh, distinguishable Anglo accent. And we said, why, yes, of course. He goes, oh, I live in Montreal. And uh, just guy's talking to us. He's got a girlfriend, you know, visiting and all this kind of stuff. The guy's talking. He's got the most beautiful chords I've ever heard. This guy, I don't know if he's got a show on Saga 960 AM and he was just being coy about it, but... I mean, just listen to that. Welcome back to Consumer Choice Radio. He sounds a lot like a couple of the radio hosts that you've uh, you've been on their programs, David. I, I quit. I don't know if it's Mike Farrell yeah. or one of these guys, Mike Sterling. Mike Sterling. Sounds very similar to that. Welcome back yeah. to Consumer no, Mike, Choice or Mike, Radio. Mike Smith. Yeah, I. Mike Smith and Sterling Fox. Yeah, you know what? It might have been Sterling Fox, um, which I think is spelled in a strange way. Uh, regardless, uh, this guy is. Spelled foe. <laughs> so this this guy, yeah, not a radio dude. You know, he did a couple tree planting uh, expeditions and was, you know, teaching English. And I guess he was just following his girl over to the European continent. Um, I know that story. Uh, but yeah, that's a nice little, <laughs> nice little intro uh, to what we're doing here. Uh, later in the program, we'll be speaking with uh, Evan Schwarztraube. Uh, who is not uh, German or Austrian, but uh, he is at the Foundation for American Innovation, a senior fellow there, uh, former staff at the Federal Communications Commission, the FCC. And uh, we're going to talk a lot about innovation, uh, rules on AI, uh, why there are no tech giants on the European continent, and uh, what is the secret sauce in North America uh, that makes it all happen. And uh, since we're on Canada Day as a theme, David, I have seen in the news recently a lot of uh, clapping and cheering from um, the, the Canadian nationalists, I'll call them that, uh, who are very excited about Canada's economic performance, immigration numbers, and all the rest. Uh, it seems I should be clapping my hands for Prime Minister Trudeau, because uh, it seems uh, the neoliberal crowd uh, has fallen into a temporary love with the Prime Minister. Uh, I, apparently, the economic numbers are super good. What's going on here? Educate me. Um I'm not sure if the economic numbers are pretty good. If you're pro-immigration, the, immig the immigration numbers are really good. We set a, a record of 145,000 immigrants in the first quarter. Um, and by 2025, I think we're going to get to like half a million a year. That's the goal, um, which I think is good. Um, there are a lot of people who disagree. Um, but I would definitely disagree on economic performance. I mean... They'll use silly things like, ooh, we, our credit rating hasn't moved. Moody's hasn't moved our credit rating. And it's like, okay, well, great. We're not going to default on our debt. <laughs> Fantastic. But like, what another are the interesting, actual... uh, Another interesting economic uh, figure. Did you know that Canada is one of the only major countries that no longer has a gold reserve? Yeah, I saw that on Twitter. A lot of the uh, the gold bugs and uh, the conspiracy crowd, not that they're the same, we're, um, we're going on about that. We have no more gold. It's a strange world out there. Yeah, there's no gold, uh, but um, you know, there's, there's still a lot of commodities. There's still a lot of great things in the uh, Canadian economic market. I've seen a lot of European uh, neoliberals that got really interested in the, the case of Canada. They, they obviously... Uh, love the immigration, like you were mentioning, and the integration that seems to work. But again, Canada is an immigration country. Many of these others are not. But uh, fun, fun stuff to see such a, a, a strange like clap back. And then, I don't know, it seems like nothing can cut Trudeau down. Doesn't matter if he's got a million scandals, no confidence. He's got ministers going around the world, like, really mucking it up. And... <laughs> like, all kinds of issues. I've just seen this with uh, Melanie Jolie. There's all, all kinds yeah. of issues and things that she's forgetting or mentioning stuff wrong. And it's like, oh, man, this is like it's like Biden saying that uh, Putin should get out of Iraq. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> if you heard that clip. 
Yes. Yeah, it, yeah, it, a lot of, lot of uh, unforced errors. I mean, they're still down in the polls, but they're in a really unique situation where there is a point where it only matters if they drop below 30%. If they can hold it like 35%, they can win a minority government. They, they would win a minority government. Um, if they could get it to 38, they could win a, a majority government. Um, where the conservatives need to be into the low 40s, high, like 40, 41, 42, to be in um, majority or minority territory just because they, uh, they don't have the best voter efficiency. Voter efficiency. I like that as a yeah. trick. Uh, all right, David. Uh, well, we got a, a couple things on the docket. We talk, uh, could talk about some um, Microsoft uh, video game uh, FTC yeah. baloney. We can uh, anything else on your mind though before we uh, head into the, the video game world? The, no, I mean that's a big one. The Activision thing is like, why is the government trying to stop a company from buying a video game platform? I mean, it just feels like the competitors have a particularly good grasp in DC where they can rub shoulders with the decision makers and be like, no, they're like, this is going to be bad for us. So don't do it. Um, but I don't know. I'm, I haven't been a gamer in a long time since the days of Goldeneye on N64, but I'm hard pressed to see how this is like a, really a federal, should be a federal focus. So uh, this is a, uh, the Microsoft is attempting to purchase Activision, uh, which is a video game manufacturer. And uh, this has been halted by uh, essentially the FTC through this lawsuit. It has been approved in other jurisdictions, including the Euros. The Europeans were all in on it, uh, but it has been uh, halted. And it, everything has to do with exclusivity of games, consoles, and they go really into the weeds as to which game is being offered on which platform, what's the deal with this game. It's like... I, I really don't remember the part in the uh, U.S. Constitution where it says uh, all video game makers must, uh, you know, <laughs> offer their games on. I, I don't know. There's no consumer welfare argument here. It seems more like it's a, another market power squeeze. And we've got yeah. an article we'll put in the show notes by our colleague Stephen Kent, our new colleague uh, Stephen Kent in the Hill. This just about that just seems like a more antitrust tomfoolery. I really hope there's a Senate like committee hearing on this where like some 90-year-old senator is going to be like, so if you buy this, can I play Call of Duty with my grandson? He has, he has a PlayStation. Can we still play together? <laughs> That's essentially the debate. Yeah, it's going to come down to... And they'll all be working on staff. They'll all be trying to understand it. And, and even the, the FTC's case, I mean, they've... Uh, there's a couple of reporters who've been following this pretty intensely. They're, they're basically getting slaughtered each and every day. And, you know, it's no surprise. I don't know how many millions of dollars this is costing. But, you know, instead of going after real competition issues, yeah, they're going after video game companies. And, and they're already, they already went after, you know, a VR headset firm that uh, Meta was trying to purchase. Yeah. So a uh, judge cited on the, on the correct side there. But... Uh, yeah, there's a lot of these lawsuits. It's been really interesting. I've been reading a lot more about this, trying to understand and figuring out how to make the consumer choice message. But um, it's uh, fairly muddied once you start getting courts involved and you actually hear testimony and then you get internal emails from the head of a competing video game company and people want to denigrate that other company. It's like, you know, let's not use uh, all of our regulatory agencies just to have companies war with each other. No, let's uh, let's actually just hand it off to consumers and let them choose between their you know PS5 and Xbox or whatever. Yeah, but let them let them battle it out. Plus, they also increasingly have been playing ball together um, more so than you would expect, and so there seems to be some balance that already exists, at least from what my gamer friends tell me. Well, gamer friends can tell us much more. Uh, you guys can find us at consumerchoiceradio.com. Tell us more. Uh, we'll be right back with uh, Evan Schwarztrauber and uh, talking all things tech and AI, comparisons between Europe and U.S. We'll be right back after this. Hey. 
And welcome back to Consumer Choice Radio. As I mentioned in the last block, uh, we're going to play a little clip here with our our friend and uh, now a friend of the show, uh, Evan Schwarztrauber. He's a senior advisor for tech and telecom policy at the Foundation for American Innovation, and he's the host of the Dynamist podcast, where you'll find uh, this full conversation. We talk a lot about uh, tech policy on both sides of the ocean, uh, both U.S., Canada, and the European Union, and some of the problems with some of the recent rules in the European Union. Let's uh, jump on in. It's been about seven years since the EU you know, implemented the GDPR, that's the General Data Protection Regulation. And this was a real landmark you know, regulation. It dealt with all sorts of aspects of consumer data. I will grossly oversimplify it in summarizing it, uh, just for the benefit of the listeners. It deals with things like data minimization, right? If you're a company that is collecting data for whatever purpose, this rule is designed to say you should only collect the data that is that are necessary for that, right? So if you're a music, you know, company, you should only collect data on the the user's music habits or music preferences, right? You shouldn't be collecting data about their political views or something like that. Um, cybersecurity, right? Companies need to take reasonable measures to protect data. Um, you need to kind of document how you're using data so that, like, if there's a breach or there's a problem, the government can kind of come in and say, okay, what went wrong? you as a consumer should have a right to ask a company, you know, what do you have on me, right? Like, what do you know about me? Um, you should be able to, in some cases, transfer your data. So let's say you have all your photos on Facebook, you want to move them to Google Photos, right? That should be allowed, right? The company should should give you that option. So it all sounds very good in theory. Um, I think, you know, for most people, they're their only interaction with GDPR is when you go to a website and they throw you the cookie notice, right? I mean, everyone listening to this has probably seen those cookie notices a million times, right? And now they're just so pervasive. But um, you're you know, based in the EU. What is the general assessment that you have of this regulation now seven years in? Like, what would you say the effects have been? Well, there's been a lot of different impacts on individual consumers uh, when they're logging onto websites, as you mentioned. And uh, we're all very familiar with what we call the cookie monster. Uh, so that is uh, something that does invade our screens. But, you know, this is the requirement that this regulation that is uh, emanated from the European Commission does require of any firm that reaches an EU IP address. So we do see a lot of that. I mean, there are good and bad, right? I, it, you can't give a blanket statement to say it is bad, it is terrible. I think there are certain aspects, and particularly the principles attached to it that are good and important, uh, particularly when it comes to data retention and liability. You know, we everybody's been in some kind of data leak, at least if, if you are an American. Uh, I'm willing to bet everybody was involved in the TransUnion Equifax uh, data leak from a couple of years ago. Yeah, uh, it was actually I mean, a hack from the Chinese military. Of people, yeah. Yeah, that was like essentially a fourth. I think it was like a third of the country or almost half the country. So that kind of stuff happens. And, you know, you have actual liabilities and penalties that are baked into GDPR when that happens. So a good example is British Airways. They had a leak of everyone's passport information. And, you know, there were in a normal age where you did not have GDPR, there would be no immediate remedy. It would usually take the courts. It would take some time. The lawyers would probably make most of the money. Uh, but with GDPR, there is a process for that. There is a way that you can say, okay, liability lies here with this particular company and how they're uh, trying to protect the data that obviously failed. And here's what should happen. So that is very interesting because if you compare it to the United States, we don't have any kind of national privacy law like that. There are some that exist, California, Virginia, and other places, and there are efforts to, to make a national law. So I think that is something that is very interesting and good. You know, it's probably not always carried out in the best way. Uh, I think that is, is probably one of the most vital things. Another one is on data retention. So another thing, if you compare to the US, uh, you just Google your own name, you can see um, any kind of data leak that's been out there in the last 20 years, people might know your address, your phone number, uh, you actually have the the right under GDPR in Europe, uh, the so-called right to be forgotten. Now, the I, basically the idea that you can write to any data broker or anyone's hosting data online and request that they remove it. And if they don't, there are penalties that are involved there. I think that's something that's very interesting. It's about ownership of data and what we actually consent to when we give our name, our email, uh, because a lot of times we're dealing with data brokers that we actually don't directly get involved with, but they are harvesting our data, they're using it in certain ways. And I think having some protections there, or at least a process, is important. 
where I think GDPR has gone too far is, is that it really has given an upper hand to the larger companies because GDPR essentially was a bonus to lawyers and entire legal departments at many major firms. And the only way that you can survive as a larger company that is dealing with data, whether you're an airline or a tech company, is you need to staff an entire department that is just about regulatory compliance when it comes to GDPR. I know this well, at least from the airline industry, from hospitality. Uh, you have to have entire new departments now that just look at how do we retain data? How are we sharing it? What is our database? And perhaps that's a very good incentive. We would hope that there would be better incentives already baked into, you know, not leaking information or having it hacked. But, you know, this is the, the kind of process that's been put together. So it's given a, a big hand up to many of the larger firms that have the ability and the resources to do that from the get-go. Many other companies, startups, don't do that. And oftentimes are, basically, it's like scoff laws during prohibition, where there's, there's probably millions of companies in Europe that are operating that are not GDPR compliant and kind of unsure of that. But because they're not big enough, they're not being pursued. So it's this kind of strange system to where the rules apply to all the companies and businesses. The eyes are really on the big data hoarders and the big companies, but everybody would be liable at any moment's notice. It's sort of like the idea that we're breaking, I don't know what, seven or eight federal laws a day in the United States. That is something that could be applied there. And that has reduced a lot of innovation. It has reduced, and we do have studies on that now, it has reduced in uh, mostly investment particularly in the tech stuff, or at least it's hosted elsewhere and just integrated in, in Europe, or it's very much under this kind of walled garden principle where you have a unique experience for a European audience and a unique experience for a US or Canadian audience. So that is a, the kind of geofencing that we're seeing that's evolving more and more with a lot of tech innovations. And I, I think is actually, unfortunately, the future of many of our different online platforms and services is we are going to have much more geofencing and blocking out. But uh, again, we have tools to route around this. And I think that's something very important for consumers to know about. Yeah, let's talk about the kind of macroeconomics of, you know, the United States versus you know, the European continent. It's very common in, you know, tech policy circles in DC and elsewhere in the United States, if you're like kind of center to, you know, free market, right leaning, to basically conclude that the reason Europe doesn't have large tech companies like Google, Facebook, et cetera, is because of regulation, right? It's not that they don't have enough people, right? They have, you know, more people than the United States. It's an attractive market. And, you know, this would be a whole other episode, but at least, you know, the, the theory behind the EU as a single market is that it facilitates, you know, the kind of advantages that the United States has by having 350 million people in the same country, right? It's, it's, a, it's a market that in theory companies can access holistically so that it can better compete. All these smaller nations can better compete. But the general idea, if you ask like a libertarian in DC, is they just, they, they strangled their tech sector with regulation. That's why they just don't have these big companies and the, you know, the joke and you have to do it. And of course, pick a European action is accent, but thought about Spotify, right? Because you have, of course, Sweden, you know, has Spotify is headquartered there. So like, yay, success. But you look at other, you know, kind of rankings and, you know, like maybe the biggest company at any given time in Europe is like a food delivery service, right? So it's it's not necessarily super interesting. No, no shots, you know, at DoorDash and Uber Eats. These are obviously innovative platforms, but you know, it's not necessarily the most exciting thing, right? If 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 you're, you know, a European and you're trying to be proud of your tech sector and like the most you know revenue you can generate is through food delivery. Is that is it as simple as that, right? That just Europe strangled their tech sector with with regulation and you know, the only way they seem to be innovating is through regulation, right? They, they innovate on the regulatory side, not on the actual entrepreneurship side, or is it more complicated than that? I think there are elements of that. You know, it depends on, on the, the country that you might be in. And there are individual countries that really have taken great strides to being more open towards innovation. Um, I think towards the, the, the Baltic hero of Estonia, a small 2 million nation country, but it's actually where we, where we got Skype and where we've got a lot more innovations. And I think they're up to like 10 unicorns now. 
you know, for, for 2 million people. And a unicorn is a tech company with a valuation of at least a billion dollars, correct? Indeed. Yes. So they've been able to, to actually strive and they're, um, other companies as well in Sweden that have worked out. I, I would say it's not necessarily just the regulation, because again, many of these regulations are fairly new. Um, they've only been in place for, let's say, five, six years, and some of them are, are just coming in. So it's kind of a lagging factor. I would just say that it's just a different approach to risk and you know, the ability to reach that, that market. And you, know, you mentioned the single market idea of Europe, uh, which again, is still fairly new. The idea of the European Union was that you would have a common block where people would have uh, freedom of trade, freedom of travel, um, freedom of exchange. Unfortunately, there still are a lot of walled gardens and it still is very difficult. And I can tell you this just from my own experience, you know, you can't use a particular bank account, even if it's from a European country and one European country. I mean, there's all these tiny rules that have not yet been implemented, but the vision is there. I, I do think it's just this approach to risk taking. and. We generally have very deep capital markets in the United States. We have ability to get capital, you know, but the European continent, most people don't have credit cards. Most people don't have, you know, huge credit, credit lines, uh, the ability to go to banks. You know, they've actually been fairly modest in terms of the amount of credit uh, that is that is given out to individuals and businesses. And that means that, you know, there's just less risk. There's less ability to take that capital. That's one thing. And it is true that just culturally, it's a lot more conservative. Uh, because a lot of times you don't have, you know, grand vision thinkers like you would have in Silicon Valley or some of these other places. People are usually looking at their local markets. Normally, they're constrained by language. So, um, you know, in the Spotify example, they if you've seen the playlist on Netflix, by the way, it's a great program. Uh, but what they were able to do is, you know, speak to something universal, which is music. But most of the online tech platforms have to immediately come out with 25 translations. Uh, they always have like a main language. So there's always these things that will kind of bifurcate and limit the growth potential of many companies. Th that always has existed. Uh, but it is true that now we are seeing more and more of these questions that will be asked by regulators. And it's not to say that there's next to no capital, because there is plenty of capital. Uh, a lot of times it's just directed more by government. Taxation tends to be a lot higher. You really have very high tax rates, even with capital gains. So you don't really have the incentive system that we have in the United States, where that if you invest, you, your taxes are a bit lower. You know, you're able to actually put things in the stock market. Uh, generally, the amount of people who put money in the stock market is fairly low. Uh, people generally are very dependent on their state pensions you know, when they get older. So there's, there's a lot of these kind of cultural mixes that I think have, have probably slowed down the innovation that could otherwise happen. But again, there are some trends that are happening um, in Estonia and some of the Baltic countries that, that really show that it, it can be different. It just takes a lot of grit. Uh, it does take a lot of entrepreneurship. And I think that spirit has been very alive in the US and uh, has been influencing a lot of people. You know, certainly if we look at Israel, it's very much the same story. Yeah, there's a story in Forbes as I was researching for the show about, you know, asking the question, can Europe build world-class tech companies? And there's a quote from, uh, I'm going to butcher his name, Risto Rossar. He's the CEO and founder of an insurance software company. And he basically, and he said, quote, in the EU, our investment culture is far more conservative and investments are made in smaller steps. In the US, there's more optimism and a willingness to let founders just go for it. So, end quote. I, I think that, you know, kind of sums up the cultural aspect and uh, not to be a nuance bro, but that's kind of my vibe on this show. It, it's, it's maybe a combination of regulation and culture. And maybe of course the regulation plays a part in shaping the culture, right? If, if there's this idea that if I do something too risky or if I move fast and break things, right. A la Silicon Valley, I've got, you know, the European commission handing down fines and, you know, breaking out my company, then maybe I'm just going to be less uh, willing to take risks. There's also the issue, of course, of what is the end goal? You know, a lot of critics of competition policy have said part of the problem is that companies in Europe, just their goal is to get bought out, right, by Google or Apple or Microsoft or whoever, right? That is considered success. So instead of, you know, forcing them to kind of grow to those heights themselves, they're just trying to get a buyout. And, you know, proponents of the VC world would say, that's great, right? That incentivizes innovation without that, that knowledge that if I 
that if I invent something great and I, I innovate, I can make a lot of money. Why would I do it in the first place? So there's always that tension between, you know, do we want companies to try to grow themselves organically become a giant or is it okay to just say that American companies can, can simply just buy them out. And if, if Europe doesn't have any company other than Spotify with the kind of capital that can, can buy out these companies, maybe, maybe that's part of what's motivating all this antitrust action in Europe. Yeah, I, I think you're, you're right on a lot of those elements, and it's not necessarily that regulations are some hunkering dark cloud, you know, that that exists upon every European country. So we have our own clouds that have nothing to do with regulation, but an iron curtain, uh, if you will. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and it, it is true. It's just that you know there is a lot of innovation that's happening. I think it really is just you're starting with small markets, you know. So that's it's just a different it's a different approach. You're, you're not able to scale immediately to the level of you know, let's say a company in California all the way to you know, New York and you're able to reach all these different people, there's still a lot of restrictions. There's a lot of restrictions with, you know, we still have custom fees on certain products, even across the EU. It doesn't matter um, that we have a single market, so-called. That vision has not yet been realized. I think once it does happen, um, Europe could be a player and it would be very interesting. But a lot of the stuff now still is very dependent on uh, sort of the American innovation retooling that American innovation. I can't tell you how many companies I've seen startups in Europe that are essentially just an idea that I've seen somewhere in the US, but that works. Something that works in a particular, much like the example of Red Bull, right? You have this energy drink that people are drinking there all the time. You bring that to the kind of the global market, a great Austrian product. Now the entire world knows Red Bull and drinks Red Bull. Sometimes it's just about taking an innovation and applying it to a different place and it has a different impact. Yeah, now Red Bull is synonymous with uh, fast cars because of F1. Uh, but, but I digress. So let's talk about AI, right? It's impossible to do any episode of a tech policy podcast these days without bringing up artificial intelligence. Um, we may be seeing kind of a convergence between the EU and US, at least in terms of skepticism and concern. Um, a lot of the rhetoric coming out of folks like, you know, uh, majority Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, kind of similar to what you see in Europe. And I, my guess is part of the motivation here is that a lot of U.S. lawmakers and regulators are, you know, have some regret about not intervening in, you know, social media sooner, right? So you've seen this whole debate about the the effect of social media on teenage mental health, right? And, you know, the spread of hate speech and misinformation. If you're on the Democratic side and on the Republican side, you know, a lot of fretting about, you know, letting these companies kind of make their own rules about speech and, you know, they're worried about censorship and bias, et cetera. Generally, though, I think it's safe to say that the U.S. is probably going to be more permissive toward AI than the EU. EU is already jumping in with regulations. Um, and the U.S. is, you know, we just have a different system, right? We don't have this like commission that can just write rules and impose it on hundreds of millions of people. It takes a lot more, right? It's hard to pass a bill in Congress. You're going to have big companies like Microsoft and Google trying to trying to get their say in the rules and open AI, of course. What is your assessment thus far of how the EU is approaching AI? You've cautioned against premature regulation in this area, but you know you're your organization works, you know, across the pond. You also do some work in the U.S. Do you have a sense of what the scuttlebutt is in Brussels and elsewhere about how Europe is going to approach AI? And is there concern that, you know, they're going to have a repeat of you know, the past 20 years where they basically kind of kill innovation before it can get it off the ground? I think what's happened uh, right now in the European Union, and, and they've, you know, been working on this for a good while Obviously, it's come, become more prescient and important right now because you have a lot of AI innovation that's happening really before our eyes. Where the EU has really tried to stake a claim is they've really gone very deep into looking at end products of AI innovation and investment. And what the message has been from Thierry Breton, so he is the European Commissioner for the Internal Market, very powerful fella, a Frenchman with the nice little bespeckled Frenchman who knows a lot of the players. And um, he has said what's important is about labels. And this is very similar to the targeted advertising 
approach of, of many of the European regulations and even some in the U.S. that we've seen introduced. They want to be able to inform consumers that something is artificial intelligence or has somehow had AI in the process. Um, so it's much akin to uh, various labels on food, for instance, if there's, you know, your nutrition labels and you know that you've got uh, polysaccharate or you've got some other uh, chemical or ingredient, um, consumers should know and there should be a label. Uh, so that's sort of the, the first thing that the EU has been pushing right now. How exactly that looks is almost impossible to tell. I mean, I use mid-journey AI all the time, uh, mostly because I'm tired of copyright notices. But, you know, we use that all the time and there's no label. You know, there's no algorithm that says this has been generated. It's probably easy to tell. But what would exactly that look like? Does that mean that the metadata of that image everywhere has to say this was generated by AI? Uh, there has to be a post if it's used in a newspaper. There's a lot of questions there that they're attempting to solve, but we don't really have an answer for yet. And what they're trying to do is, is follow a lot on safety, where the EU is good in talking about AI. There you go, some positive points is they do focus a lot on how governments will use it. And I think that is something that is important to think about because it's, it's not just you know, bad actors in the tech field. We also have police departments uh, that we know in Europe and the United States that have used different AI companies to track and profile subjects. Uh, you know, there's a lot of different scandals related to that. And the police and a lot of governments have used a lot of these technologies in order to pursue investigations, whether right or not. And I don't think we have the, the right answer. So they at least have what they call a stoplight approach. You know, you have your green light, your yellow light, and your red light. So there are certain things that are green lit. You know, if you just want to do a couple images, that's great. Yellow light, as soon as you start talking about people's health or personal safety, that is something that will be regulated a bit more. And then red, um, so this has anything to do with kind of political speech. Now, I think that is where there's a lot of room to grow for the European vision, because, again, there, we just don't have in, in Europe the same protection for free speech. There's no First Amendment that exists in, in European countries. And there are many situations where speech is criminalized. If uh, you know, we're talking about historical tragedies that people might deny or, or various slurs, you know, a lot of these things actually on the books, there are penalties for it and people do go to jail for it. So they, they want to put out essentially a lot of roadblocks, and you're not going to get any big AI company that comes out of Europe without several meetings and sessions and probably multiple staff who are in constant coordination with regulators from the European Union. And I think right now, there's a lot of emphasis that's being put onto this, but there's going to be a big push to the larger companies who are already in AI, and they're going to own a very early an advantageous position. And I find that very troubling because we should have open rules that do allow competition. And I'm, we're already seeing a little bit of regulatory capture. We don't want that to be the case. And it should remain as open as possible because eventually what Europe is doing is it's attempting to choose the tech winner. And we need to have tech neutrality as much as possible. And I think that's, that's a principle that's a bit missing from uh, the European rules right now. Yeah, and you could argue that speech and tech innovation are, <clears throat> let me start that over because I have a frog in my throat. <clears throat> you could argue that speech and tech innovation are just completely intertwined because if you look at some of the biggest innovations that have come out over the past 20 years, right? It's social media, right? It's, it's YouTube, it's Facebook. These are, these are platforms for speech. And then even, you know, the smaller ones like Signal um, or what used to be small, like WhatsApp. And Perhaps, you know, when Europe kind of looks back into its history and says, like, why didn't we have more innovation? Part of it might be this, this culture of how they approach speech. You know, it's generally accepted around the world, right, that democratic governments have some form of free speech. But the First Amendment truly is unique. Um, you know, we kind of take it for granted in the United States. But, you know, just Google any sort of story of, you know, UK police knocking someone's door down because of a tweet they sent, right? Like it's, it sounds stupid and absurd, but it happens. And I'm glad you brought it up because when it comes to AI, right, we're talking about generative AI, that is speech, right? I go into chat GPT, I ask a question, it spits something out, right? That is, that is speech. And the question is, it's from a robot, right? So how is it regulated? I think that's going to be a major focus of the EU. And 
it'll be interesting to see whether their culture on speech, right? It's more risk averse. It's more, you know, censorious, at least in my opinion, and I'm betraying my bias here. Will that deter innovation? And I, you know, there's already been this whole blow up over Elon Musk buying Twitter, right? And a lot of folks have said that the EU and Twitter are basically just, you know, on a collision course. And uh, I want to play a clip from the executive vice president of the European Commission, Margaret Vestager. Am I saying that right? You're, you're, my, uh, you're my pronunciation guru here. Vestager. Okay, yes. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah I figured uh, might be a little weird if I switched into that accent. <laughs> I can't do it nearly as, as, as effective as you, given uh, your, your trilingualness. But um, yeah, she's, she's often you know, a, a figure in tech policy because she focuses a lot on antitrust and competition. But um, here was... Uh, Ms. Vestager uh, talking about Twitter uh, being, you know, bought by Elon Musk. This was some months ago and kind of this tension and, and how, you know, Elon's vision of this digital town square where for the most part speech is permitted uh, if it's lawful versus kind of the prior regime at Twitter, which was much more willing to intervene in political debates and hate speech and things like that. Let's hear what she had to say. When it comes to this specific acquisition of Twitter, there have been recent reports suggesting that the Commission is already on a collision course with, uh, with Twitter. Is that true? But, you know, we're, we're never on a collision course with anyone uh, because we consider ourselves a mountain. Uh, <laughs> How so? Because, <laughs> because, you know, a business like Twitter will have to navigate. Yeah. Uh, if they want to prover- uh, provide services uh, in the European market. Uh, I think the European market is a very attractive one. Uh, and uh, I think it's very important uh, that people trust the services that are being delivered. I myself very much appreciated the, the uh, things that Twitter was doing, you know, sort of the nudging. Maybe you should read this article before you pass it on. I think that kind of nudging is most welcome. Uh, sort of the nudging, if you're reading this tweet about uh, vaccine skepticism, this is where you can go for uh, official uh, information. Uh, All these things making uh, Twitter a much more trustworthy uh, social platform. And uh, and I think it's very sad to see that the people who uh, uh, ventured uh, these uh, innovations, uh, that they seem to have no say. And one of those tools was, and uh, Jane, when you're editing that, if you can just cut out that, or, or cut that clip off when she's done speaking. So while a lot of you know free speech advocates and you know mostly on the right side of the political aisle in the United States were very excited when Elon Musk bought Twitter because they thought it would be more pro free speech. I mean, there you have deep concern, right, from a very important European regulator that Twitter would kind of have a more American approach more First Amendment-oriented approach to speech, she's considering that a very bad thing, right? And you could extrapolate from that that there's going to be a lot of problems with the risk-taking and experimentation that AI is going to deliver when it comes to speech, whether it's an image like on Midjourney or whether it's a, a blog that you know ChatGPT is drafting or other services, whether it's research or whatever. These tools are new. There's going to be experimentation, they're going to get things wrong. They're going to say bad things. People have already, you know, in their, in the course of research, intentionally tried to get generative AI tools to say bad things, right? To deny the Holocaust, to do horrible things, right? As, as just demonstrations. That doesn't necessarily mean that there's anything inherently wrong with the tool. Uh, but how do you think that's going to impact the way that Europe approaches AI, given that you kind of have a a microcosm of the cultural approach to speech as, uh, as evidenced by her comments there. Yeah, it gives us a lot of pause because I think what we can tell from um, her point of view and I think the general European point of view, and again, the loudest people on AI, um, at least in Europe, have not been the innovators who are you know, trying to build and do something and, and have great ideas. It's really been the regulators first. Uh, so you had Thierry Breton, who I mentioned before. You had uh, our dear Margaret. You know, they were very loud and active as soon as Elon Musk was interested in Twitter. And you, know, you could see that they, they, have, they want to have the ability to control part of the narrative. And what she mentioned before, you know, the nudging that many social media platforms are doing. I mean, this is not 
nudging out of nowhere. This is in consultation with government officials. This is pretty much on the record. It's what the Twitter files were all about. It's what many social media platforms, again, have entire departments dedicated to. And uh, we call that process jawboning. And what is um, interesting about AI and how, how we'll do it is, you know, we're already setting up these kind of restrictions. I, I didn't mention this before, but part of the, the AI rules that are being proposed in Europe, and again, there's still a lot of time to implement this and to send in comments, which we will be doing. Uh, but they want to be sure that there's, you know, a limit on the real-time characteristics or um, any kind of sensitive areas that will not be essentially put into the algo. Gender, race, ethnicity, uh, religion, political orientation. Uh, you know, these are a lot of things that they want to ex-nay from the input. And that's going to be very interesting to see because, again, th this is the whole part about the digital world is that the digital world is endless. We can make a million copies of everything. As long as we have the computing power and the bandwidth, you can copy anything a million times. You can come up with any algorithm that you can. But if you have restrictions on these inputs, and granted, many of them are already embedded in something like OpenAI and ChatGPT, you know, what, it's going to turn into a laundry list. <laughs> And if that laundry list has to be applied to every single AI algorithm, uh, that is going to take its own data center. So that is something to where they're not really looking towards the future. And they're really looking at today's technology and trying to regulate based on that. But we're actually limiting ourselves into what that innovation could be. And I think that is somewhat concerning. The American model, yes, is true. Move fast, break things, uh, free speech online. Like, you know, let's may the best company win um, in Europe. It wants to be a much more couched approach. And I, th I think, yeah, you're going to see a lot of, of great innovators that are going to come out of the U.S., but we're going to continue to see the geofencing of, OK, well, not available for EU citizens, <laughs> not available for EU IP addresses. I just see that more and more of a trend. We're seeing it with other issues, whether it be link taxes and news you know, that's happening in Canada and it's already happened in Australia. and happen in California very soon. There's a lot of these, these different issues. I don't know if Europe will have the answer. Um, oftentimes they have very good instincts. It's just in carrying it out, sometimes they go a bit too far. Yeah. And the Digital Services Act, of course, is dealing with these platforms. It's a relatively new regulation from Europe. So maybe you'll have to come back on the show. Hopefully this show exists in six years and you, we can kind of do a postmortem the way that we did with GDPR. Before we go, I have to ask you, because I know you're a big crypto slash Bitcoin guy. And you actually mine Bitcoin in your home, as I understand it. And uh, you know, props to your family for putting up with the amount of noise that that machine probably generates. Well, not, not at these energy prices anymore, Evan. <laughs> <laughs> not at these prices with this inflation. Are you kidding me? Yeah, but um, you know, I, I'm reminded of that uh, famous story where this guy uh, was mining Bitcoin way back in the day when it was super cheap, and um, he could have been like a billionaire, but his girlfriend or wife at the time said that machine is too loud, um, so turn it off. Um, so, uh, there's a, there's a lesson for you. Sometimes it's worth, uh, you know, being in a loud environment if you can get rich, but, um, real quick, you know, the SEC in the United States has been kind of going after, you know, these big exchanges like Binance and Coinbase. We're going to have an episode coming out about that, or maybe it'll already be released, uh, depending on how we decide to release these episodes with a, with a former Senate banking official. Um, you've seen China completely ban Bitcoin mining, right? There's this, there's this issue of, okay, Bitcoin mining uses a lot of energy. You have states like Texas that are really embracing it. You have states like New York that are saying no. Um, very quickly, to the extent possible, you know, where is Europe on, on crypto and Bitcoin mining today? And uh, is there anything that we can kind of learn from their approach that might give us insight into how they might approach other, you know, next-gen technologies like AI? Yeah, I think it's a, it's a good inquisitive question. Unfortunately, the mining business here is, because of the energy prices, practically non-existent. Uh, basically, just the European energy market, and again, we've seen the crisis with the invasion of Ukraine and what happened to energy prices. You just haven't been able to have the same innovation that you've had in the U.S. You know, the U.S. again wins out because it has plentiful energy that's very cheap to the average consumer. So if you compare my energy bills to somebody who might be in, uh, I don't know, Rockdale, Texas, or Arlington, Virginia, uh, it's a huge difference. And that also means that 
most European homes don't have, you know, air conditioning, don't have, you know, large pools that can be heated in the wintertime. You know, there's all these like tiny things that impact your life just dependent on the price of energy. So yeah, I haven't seen much there. Um, the European regulations on, on Bitcoin have been a bit muddied. Uh, we have something now called the um, Markets in Crypto Assets Bill, MICA. Um, that's sort of been the big focus. And it focuses a little bit more on exchanges and liquidity and, and what information has to be provided. Uh, you know, it really would not have prevented something like FTX, which is a big thing in the news. Um, and I think there's really not many places globally that have it right on, on how to approach this, whether it be mining or um, exactly how to deal with Bitcoin and other crypto offspring. I do see that there's a lot of great innovation that just happens you know, between people, and a lot of it is very permissionless, and governments are really at a loss for, for how to compete with this or understand it. I think the best approach as a consumer advocate is just to figure out you know, what are the innovations and how can we ensure those innovations are protected and people can use them, and ensuring that we don't have antiquated government rules that restrict that. And that's what's happening in some of the places where mining is being banned in the United States. They're using sort of environmental recommendations or saying we need to do some kind of inspection or permit and, you know, you can't have your mining facility here. Uh, but there's a lot of great opportunities. Again, there's all these entrepreneurial activities that come out of something like Bitcoin and its applications that are just beginning right now. Um, so, yeah, is there anything to learn right now in Europe? <laughs> Not so much, uh, I think. Instant payments uh, through the SEPA system akin to the incoming FedNow is about the only thing we can learn from uh, when it comes to Bitcoin in Europe. Well, we'll leave it there. Uh, we can check out Yael's great work and the great work of his colleagues at consumerchoicecenter.org. You can read big-brained takes about you know the GDPR and antitrust, but also some important stuff about the war on coffee pods or how to stop the government from ruining your favorite uh, vape or uh, <laughs> your favorite uh, flavor uh, for tobacco harm reduction, nicotine pouches, uh, what have you. Um, Yael is also the co-host of Consumer Choice Radio. He is very generously going to incorporate some of today's discussion on that show, which has a bigger audience, but uh, thank you, Yael, for your uh, great work and for agreeing to come on the show and share some of your wonderful audience with us. Is there anything else you'd like to plug? Oh, no, not at all. I think the, the work that we're doing at CCC lives on. Um, there's always a consumer issue that we have to be very active on and always something that we got to do. So oh. stay busy. And um, I'm a big fan of the podcasting medium. So uh, keep it up on open podcasting. And uh, if you're not subscribed to The Dynamist, you guys should. Absolutely. Yes. Thank you. And that does it for us, guys. Uh, thanks so much for tuning in. If you guys want to listen to the entire interview with the nice little preamble on uh, culture and all funny things, uh, that's over there on the Dynamist. Dynamist. Do check that out in your podcast app. You can search uh, right there using Spotify, um, Apple Podcasts, or if you're on Podcasting 2.0 and want to send some value and have a much more interactive podcast app, check out Podverse, Fountain, Castomatic. Uh, value for value. It is the future of podcasting. Thank you guys for tuning into our program and uh, we'll be back next week. Until then, stay free.